Well, good morning. Psalm number 48. And it's fitting that we would read the introduction in the first three verses to the psalm. And Jake then read the last three verses of the psalm because it's such an intense piece of scripture that that's probably the only parts of the psalm that I'm going to be able to get to. For those of you who are trying to follow along, I'm not going to be able to preach the entire psalm uh, just because there's so much there. I'll make some notes about it and I'll give you an outline here in just a moment of the psalm, but I won't be able to make it through all 14 verses this morning. I want to remind you of some things, you know, starting in Psalm 45, that was the wedding song. But really, when you look at Psalm 45, 46, 47, and 48, there is a sort of common theme which binds all of these psalms together. There's actually two uh, very distinctive themes that, that cause these psalms to sort of coagulate together and stick together. And the first theme is, very obviously, is that God reigns over all the earth. Uh, you have this great theme, and this was important because the Jewish people sort of believed that God was their ethnic deity. So they believed that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was just their God. All the other nations had their own gods. We're going to talk about that this morning. But the Jewish people sort of, they had this idea in their minds like that Yahweh or Jehovah, the God of Israel in the Old Testament, that that was their God and that was their God only. And, uh, and so you remember that when Jesus came to the earth, he sort of has to take this bad thinking that they have head on. He deals with that. And Psalms 45, 46, 47, and 48 really do teach and very clearly reveal that God is the God of all the earth. The other theme that comes to the surface in this grouping of Psalms is the city of God. Uh, in one way or another, whether the city of God is called the city of God or it's inferred as the holy mountain or Jerusalem, uh, the theme that sort of, of course, binds these psalms together, 45 through 48, is also the theme of the city of our God. In Psalm 45, we learn that God has anointed his king over Jerusalem who reigns with his bride and we also learned that that relationship between the king of Israel and his bride pictures Christ and the church for us today under the new covenant. Then you come into the 46th Psalm, and Psalm 46 asserts that God himself is our mighty fortress pictured in the city of Jerusalem with its splendid temple, walls, and gate. Psalm 47 reveals the Lord Most High in His reign over all the earth. And here now we come into Psalm 48, and Psalm 48 calls upon us to survey magnificent Zion and marvel over the great city of our God. Now out of all these four psalms, sort of the cherry on top, the climax, the pinnacle, uh, of those four psalms is actually the one that we're going to be looking at this morning at Psalm 48. So sort of at the top of the staircase, 
as if you will, is the 48th Psalm, which is sort of like the capstone for this grouping of the Psalms. And I want you to notice something. I don't know if we read it in our introduction, but notice Psalm 48 and verse 11. He said, let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Um, You have to understand that for the Jewish people, the city of Jerusalem held a very significant role in the sort of the Old Testament sacrificial system of worship uh, that the Jewish people held to. You know, the temple was within the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And so when it says uh, in verse 11, let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, Every year, several times a year, during some of the feasts of Israel, the people of uh, the nation of Israel would come on a pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem to observe certain feasts and so forth. This particular psalm, uh, we believe, was written about the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles was a very important Jewish holy day And it had to do with the commemoration of God's provision for Israel um, while they were wandering in the wilderness in the Pentateuch. So you remember uh, the Jewish people leave Egypt and they cross the Red Sea and God drowns their enemies in the sea. And then they begin a time of pilgrimage, a time of journeying through the uh, great wilderness of that day, and they're on their way to the promised land. And you remember over and over again, no matter what their needs were, God faithfully meets their needs. If they need food, God drops manna from heaven. If they need water, he draws water out of the rock miraculously for them over and over again. And the Feast of Tabernacles was really a feast that commemorated this divine and supernatural provision of God for the Jewish people as they were wandering through the wilderness in the Pentateuch. And I want to show you something in verse number 12. It says, walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers. So as these Jewish pilgrims were coming to observe the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, Psalm 48 was written to commemorate and to teach the pilgrims as they are coming to observe the Feast of Tabernacles to walk around the city of Jerusalem. And as they're walking around the city of Jerusalem, they're to be picturing the infinitely greater city of Zion in the heavenly realm and all that God was doing on the spiritual level for them as his covenant people. So this is a very, very unique passage because it has to do with Bible meditation. And so I'll give you a a brief sort of introductory note on Bible meditation. Probably one of the spiritual disciplines in my life that has been the most helpful since I became a Christian has been not just Bible reading, but actually meditating on the Bible. And Perhaps out of all the Psalms that we have studied up until this point, 48 of them, none of them lend themselves more clearly and more effectively to Bible meditation. And so this is the way it works. When the Jewish people were ascending the mount to go to Jerusalem and the temple and the palaces and the great walls, the people of Israel were being called upon to envision 
the great and wonderful spiritual realities that God was giving them because of his gracious covenant. Matter of fact, in the psalm itself, in verse 9, he says, We have fought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. See, what this psalm was written, it was written to strike and to be striking and to strike certain thoughts into the hearts and minds of the people of God as they were coming to observe the holy days. And specifically, they were being called upon to meditate, to ruminate, to ponder um, all that God was doing for them and all that the city of Jerusalem represented on the spiritual level. Each of those citadels, those bulwarks, the great walls, the great towers, each of those represented the divine provision and protection of God for his people under the old covenant. And as they were coming on their pilgrimage, it wasn't that they were just to go into the city. It's that they took a walk around the entire perimeter of the outside and they were celebrating and commemorating uh, God's goodness and God's protecting grace for them as they meditated on all that the city of Jerusalem pictured uh, in the redemptive purposes of God in the Old Testament. He says in verse 12, walk around Zion, go about her, number her towers. Verse 13, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God. It's a very important psalm. And so let us come this morning to survey this great celestial city so we may worship and celebrate the God who reigns there. I have four points. I only get to two of them this morning. The first one, number one, Roman numeral number one, is a celebration of glorious Mount Zion in verses one through three of Psalm number 48. A celebration of glorious Mount Zion in verses one through three. Roman numeral number two, a celebration of indestructible Mount Zion in verses four through eight. Roman numeral number two, a celebration of indestructible Mount Zion in verses four through eight. Roman numeral number three, a celebration of the congregation in verses nine through 11. A celebration of the congregation in verses nine through 11. And then last but certainly not least, take a walk around Zion in verses 12 through 14. Take a walk around Zion, verses 12 through 14, this Lord's Day morning. We'll only have time to get to the first and the last points. What we need to be focused on in verse number one, he said, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. This city, the city of Jerusalem, is unlike any city that came before it. And it's unlike any city that has ever come after it. And the reason is, is because all of Jerusalem, everything about the city of Jerusalem pointed to the God of Israel. And the temple, the temple mount, 
uh, within the walls of the city was sort of the centerpiece for the Jewish people as they came on their pilgrimage. And would you join me in saying, or would you agree with the statement I'm going to make as a sub-point, that this is a theocentric city. The word theocentric means God-centered. This city is unlike any city that's ever been in that it is a God-centered city. And this is very important. Let me explain what I mean. He said, great is the Lord, the city of our God. The Lord is great, therefore the city is great and holy. God's presence in the city is what endues this city with a very special kind of character. In other words, the city does not inform us of how good and great God is. God informs us of how good and great the city is. All that was the city of Jerusalem, all that it represented, spoke and pictured the goodness and the covenant and the greatness of the God who is said to dwell there. Now you remember the literal dwelling place of God is in the most holy place inside the temple. It is on the Ark of the Covenant. It's the mercy seat of God. And you remember the mercy seat is very important because on the Day of Atonement, the high priest of Israel one time a year would come and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And this was a very important place because this represented the throne and the presence of God in the city of Jerusalem. But what made the city so great had nothing to do with the city. What made the city so great was the God who ruled and reigned there. And this is an important point that I want to illustrate. You may or may not be aware, how many people have ever seen the 1939 film, was it Judy Garland, The Wizard of Oz? That's a classic. Huh? How many people have ever seen it twice? Raise your hand. How many people have ever seen it four times? Raise both hands. All right. Everybody's seen this film at least three or four times probably in your life. I know that my kids, this is a classic in our home. It's a classic and uh, very well should be. It's an amazing film, perhaps one of the best that's ever been made of all time. But did you know that the 1939 film, The Wizard of Oz, is actually a political allegory? Did you know that? I want to uh, give you a little bit more information on this. I'm going to read a rather lengthy article. About a third of it I wrote and about two-thirds of it I got from another source. I'll give you the source at the end of the reading. So pay attention very closely, all right? The 1939 film Wizard of Oz was an adaptation from L. Frank Baum's children's fantasy novel entitled The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, written in the year 1900. Mr. Baum himself was a political reporter in the 1890s while living in South Dakota. Over the years, many have speculated that Baum's work in The Wonderful Wizard of Oz was essentially a political allegory, and the evidence is very persuasive. Dorothy represents the average American of that era. According to the historian Quentin Taylor, the character of Dorothy represents all of us at our very best. Kind, self-respecting, guileless, but level-headed, wholesome, but plucky. In the 1880s and 90s, the great state of Kansas went through a horrible period of drought, terrible winters, and a grasshopper invasion which destroyed the prairies. The farmers blamed Wall Street, railroads, 
politicians, and even nature itself, the populist movement arose from these conditions. The Wizard of Oz has many allusions to the geopolitical phenomenon of the time. The Scarecrow represents disenchanted farmers in the Midwestern United States. If I only had a brain, he sings. This coupled with what Littleton says is a terrible sense of inferiority and self-doubt is due to years of ridicule. In one 1896 article, for example, Kansas farmers were accused of being, quote, ignorant, irrational, and generally muddle-headed. End quote. The Populist Party, new to the scene at the end of the 1800s, was primarily made up of farmers who were mocked by everyone else. They were called deluded, simpletons, and radicals. But the scarecrow proves that he isn't stupid. In fact, he shows common sense and resilience on the journey. The story implies that farmers are not nearly as stupid as their political opponents suggest. The Tin Man is the mistreated factory worker. In the 1890s, the U.S. was in the middle of an industrial revolution, and that shift created a lot of workers who weren't being treated well by their bosses. Inner Balm's Tin Woodman. He represents a dehumanized worker who was literally turned into tin by the wicked witch of the East. The Tin Man was once a strong, healthy worker, but after the witch cursed him, he accidentally chopped off his own limbs. Each was replaced with tin, transforming the worker into the tin man. The tin man represents factory workers who have lost their heart in the new economy, and the symbolism goes even deeper. The tin man is rusted when Dorothy first meets him, paralleling the high unemployment during the depression of the 1890s. But he is ready to work, as Dorothy demonstrates, by giving him just a few drops of oil. The line is the populist hero, William Jennings Bryan. There are a lot of clues that the cowardly lion represents the greatest populist hero of the 1890s, William Jennings Bryan. Bryan, lion, get it? can't help myself. The symbolism goes deep on this one. Like the cowardly lion, Brian was known for his roaring. He was even portrayed as a lion by the press. In the, as the Democratic presidential candidate in 1896 and 1900, Brian promoted the free silver movement, arguing that America's gold standard was harming farmers. In his famous Cross of Gold speech in 1896, Brian railed, having behind us the commercial interest and the laboring interest and all the toiling masses, we shall answer their demands for a gold standard by saying to them, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold, Brian railed. But Brian was unable to win either election in part because he couldn't win over eastern workers, just like the cowardly lion's claws could make no impression on the tin man. The wicked witch represents powerful political interest in the American government. 
The two wicked witches in The Wizard of Oz represent powerful forces in American politics that threaten the country. The wicked witch of the East, who Dorothy smashes with her house, is a thinly veiled reference to Wall Street and all the moneyed interests in the 1890s. She represents financial industrial interest, and she is the one who stole the tin man's heart and, and enslaved the munchkins. The wicked witch of the West similarly symbolizes the rich in America's West, bankers, railroad owners, and wealthy oil men like J.D. Rockefeller. Just as the wicked witch of the East enslaves the munchkins, the witch in the West enslaves the Winkies who represent Asian laborers in America's West. She is finally dissolved with water, another allusion to the monetary debate over liquidity. The Emerald City is Washington, D.C. The goal of Dorothy's journey through Oz, at least initially, is to reach the Emerald City. The magical place will solve all of her problems, and the mysterious Wizard of Oz will help her return to Kansas. But Dorothy's initial optimism about the beautiful city quickly evaporates. According to Littlefield, quote, the Emerald City represents the national capital, end quote, making it Washington, D.C., and although Dorothy, the average American believes that entrance in Capital City can solve all of her problems, she soon realizes that the city, like the wizard, is more mirage than real. The wizard is the president of the United States, whose power is merely an illusion. Although the wizard claims to be great and powerful, he's actually a charlatan. As Littlefield explains, the wizard is a little bumbling old man hiding behind a facade of paper mache and noise, making him any president from Grant to McKinley. Rather than playing a specific person, the wizard is symbolic of the presidency itself. And just like a politician, the wizard says, quote, I never grant any favors without some return, end quote. In the book, the wizard asks Dorothy to kill the Wicked Witch of the West. The request shows the wizard's lack of power. If he was truly so great, would he need a little girl to carry out his orders? Like American president, the wizard's power was an illusion. And in many ways, he was less powerful than the two wicked witches. Much of the article I just read was written by Miss Genevieve Carlton. Ph.D. from Northwestern University in History. That's eye-opening, isn't it? And it is the truth. And what's so fascinating about this is that when you come to this great celestial city one day, if you're a Christian, there's nothing about the power of the great king that's illusionary. His power is real. There is no smoking mirrors and flashing lights and fog machines with the God of the great city of which our pilgrimage is going to end up. There's nothing illusionary about him. He is who he says he is. And matter of fact, not only that, when we get there, we will realize that he is infinitely greater than we ever imagined him to be. Dr. Parker, all the time, he used to say, did it ever occur to you that your highest thoughts about who God is are mere idolatry? 
Your highest thoughts about who you think God is are mere idolatry. God is infinitely greater than our wildest imaginations about what we could conceive of him to be. He's not the Wizard of Oz playing a role. He's not the President of the United States huffing and puffing, making you think that he has more power than he really does. He is a great God and a great King over all the earth. There's nothing about him that is an illusion. Now here's the question by way of application that we're all faced with. Are we coming to the great city of the great king for the sake of seeing the city? Or have we come or are we going to the city of the great king to see the king himself? That is the question. My friend Paul Washer all the time says this. He says there's a lot of people that want to go to heaven when they die. They just don't want God to be there. Think about this. There's a lot of people that want the benefits of heaven, of the celestial city. They want the protection of the walls. They want all that it represents, but they don't want God. Whenever I worked in addiction recovery ministry, a lot of people want to get sober. Very few people want Jesus to make them sober. See, here's how it works. The result, the outcome... The symptom of the greatness of God is the fact that God's city is great. The city itself is not something to be longed for, but the God of the city is why we're on our pilgrimage. I don't come to God so that I can go to heaven when I die. That's merely a secondary means, a secondary outcome. I come to God because God is God. I come to God because there's no one like him. I come to God because when no one else loved me, God did. God is great. God is glorious. God is wonderful. God is truly the great king. And these verses, verses 1 and 2, describe the magnificent God and his magnificent dwelling place, Zion. I also want to show you something in verse 2. I'll read it for you in the English Standard Version, then I'll read the NIV. The ESV says, Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Now I'll read you from the New International Version. Beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth, like the heights of Zaphon, is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. Now you see that there is a slight discrepancy there in the translation. And here's why. Because in the Hebrew language, the word Zaphon is actually the same word for north. But what we need to understand is Mount Zaphon is an actual geographical location located in the very far northern reaches of the country of Israel. What does this mean? Well, this mountain Zaphon is identified in Ugaritic and other ancient Canaanite myths as being the dwelling place of the storm god Baal Zaphon. The Canaanites believe this particular location, Mount Zaphon, was where the god Baal Zaphon assembled at the top of the mountain with all the other gods. So they, the Canaanites, for them and their mythology, 
They believed that Mount Zaphon was the geographical location at the top of this mountain. Baal, their god, the god of the storm, met with his council of other celestial and heavenly beings. What does this mean? I want to read you this. Quote, In the Baal cycle of stories from Ugarit, Baal sends a message to Anat, goddess of war, bidding her to come to him. In the midst of my mountain, the divine Zaphon, in the sanctuary, in the mountain of my inheritance, in the pleasant place, in the hill I have conquered. The concept of gods dwelling on top of mountains was a very common one amongst the people of the ancient Near East. The Israelites, the Jewish people, also believed that their god Yahweh dwelled on the mountain. Except the mountain upon which Yahweh dwelt was Zion. So, Zion, Zaphon. You see the connection there? There's a pun. There's a sort of illusion that's being made. Let's keep going. Mount Zion is actually the city of Jerusalem, the geographical location. Psalm 48, Psalm 48 equates Mount Zion and Mount Zaphon. And as the great commentator P.C. Craigie writes, quote, The psalmist affirms, in effect, that the aspirations of all peoples for a place on earth where God's presence could be experienced were fulfilled in Mount Zion, the true Zaphon, end quote. The mountain of Zion was the dwelling place of the high God, which has been appropriated and now occupied by Yahweh, the God of the Israel, Israelites, and not Baal. Jerusalem is the true Mount Zaphon where God dwells. Notice in chapter number 48 and verse number 2. He said the city of not just any God, but the great God. Now don't let me bore you with all the language stuff. But this word great, when you look outside of the biblical corpus, when you look outside of the Old Testament and how this word great was being used... This word great, the word rav in Hebrew, was usually used to describe a king, and that king was said to be the king of all the other kings. So what does this mean? Well, here the psalmist employs this word great to imply that Yahweh's position, the God of Israel, is that he is at the very top of the food chain. He's at the very top of the totem pole. This is the same concept that we read in the 47th Psalm, except for here it's developed more, and we see that the meeting place where God holds his counsel is actually Jerusalem and the temple. What does this mean? Somebody says, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? No pun intended. Here it is. What this psalm does is it invites us with a heart of faith and with eyes of faith to take a pilgrimage to the great celestial city of Zion and behold the great king who rules and reigns there at the top of the food chain. When was the last time that you took your pilgrimage to Zion? 
When was the last time that you closed your eyes and walked around that great city with its great towers and palaces and walls and you beheld all that God was and all that God was doing in your life and in our church's life and in the world around us? See, no matter what's happening, nothing can stop you from closing your eyes and stilling your heart. And with meditation and the eyes and heart of faith, taking a walk around that great and celestial city known as Zion. And that brings us to our next point, taking a walk around Zion in verses 11, or excuse me, 12 through 14. I want to read them for you. He said, walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. The pilgrims, the daughters of Judah, these daughters of Judah represented the little towns and villages that surrounded the great city of Jerusalem. And whenever there was a threat of war or whenever there was the feast or a holy day, these daughters of Judah were the people that made up these little towns and hamlets and villages and so forth that surrounded the southern kingdom and surrounded the, the city of Jerusalem. And if there was a military threat, if there was an invading army, these daughters of Judah, all the people that made up these little towns, they would run into the city of Jerusalem, the gate would shut behind them, and they would seek refuge behind the great and mighty walls of the city of Jerusalem. But more than that, when they came on their pilgrimage uh, for the Feast of Tabernacles, they were encouraged to walk around the literal perimeter of the city. And they were encouraged to see with their eyes and behold with all their senses the great walls and palaces and towers that gave the Jewish people their security and their safety. And more than that, the God who reigned on the mercy seat in the temple. They were called to envision the, with the eyes of faith that these great citadels, these bulwarks, these walls, the gates and the towers, that these represented the gracious covenant and the precious promises of their God, the promise that God made for them for safety and protection specifically. Now, I want to follow the meditations of the great Puritan John Owen. He said there are five great bulwarks or ramparts which we can consider in this great psalm. Now remember, we are new covenant believers, but what we're doing is we're going to read the new covenant back into the old covenant. Because we don't have the literal city in all its glory like the pilgrims in Jerusalem did. So what we have to do is use a little bit of faith and imagination and Bible meditation, shall we? So I have five great ramparts that as we take a stroll around the city of Jerusalem, that we can see with the eyes of faith and we can meditate in our hearts of the celestial city and the great king that rules there and all that he's doing. Number one, the great rampart of Christ as the king of the church and the city of Zion. This calls us to meditate and consider the character of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ the King. The world has known many great kings and leaders. The world has also known many, many more despots. 
I think now of King Herod in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 3 and 4, he ordered the killing of the firstborn of Israel, the children, the babies of the Israelites. I also remember the good King Josiah who ordained that all the idols in Israel would be destroyed. Here I have a little article I want to read for you. Quote, in 1949, Mao Zedong would become the first chairman of the Communist Party. While he was leader, he instituted many cultural and social reforms, one of which was the infamous Great Leap Forward in 1958. The result was one of the worst man-made famines in history, where it is estimated that over 40 million people died of starvation. This was followed by the Cultural Revolution in 1966, which destroyed much of the cultural and historic legacy of China. It is probably with much relief that Mao died in September 1976 at the age of 82. Yes, indeed, the world has known many evil rulers. The world has known many kings and many who have not ruled the world in righteousness and in peace. But our great king, Christ the Lord, is not like that at all. He is infinitely greater than that. He is completely free of any sin or sin nature. And he is and will rule the world in perfect righteousness. I like Revelation 11 and verse 15. The Bible said, The king of this world has become the king, the king, kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. King Jesus is utterly sovereign, infinitely wise, wonderfully compassionate and incredibly patient. Members of Christ's kingdom can rest assured in him and take refuge behind this great rampart of Zion in the church, this great wall. Isn't that wonderful? As you in your minds and hearts eye of faith, as you walk around the great celestial city, envision the great wall, the great citadel, the great tower that is the righteous King Jesus Christ the Lord. Secondly, the great rampart of God's innumerable promises. This is what I saw as I was preparing, as I was walking around that great city. Can you believe that? Over there in the parsonage, I was walking around the city of Zion, that celestial city, thinking about all that God is, all that God has done. And it's true, isn't it? You can. You can take a little stroll around the greatest city that the world will ever know. You can do that with the eyes of faith, with a heart of faith. And as I walked around the city, it was as if I saw with my heart and mind's eye of faith, the exceedingly innumerable and precious promises of God written up and down, left and right, as I walked as far as I could see in those great ramparts, those great walls, the promises which God has made to me. And they are innumerable and they are exceedingly precious. I like what one uh, Bible teacher said. He said, and he was a children's Bible teacher, and he promised his young students $10 if they could think of any good promises that God had not given to his people. Later on, the Bible teacher remarked that he could have promised to give the children $10 million because God has promised to meet all of our needs and to give us all good things. Now, being the Bible nerd that I am, 
If I would have been in that class, I would have said, teacher, God has promised to meet our needs. God has not promised to give us our wants. There's a big difference. See, God knows what we need. We think we have needs, and God has promised to meet all of our needs. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, your father knows what you need before you ask him. God has promised to meet all of our needs, and he's, done, and he's promised to do that abundantly. God has not promised to give us our wants. So if I pray something and I say, oh Lord, I need, and yet God's not giving it to me, I'll know that's not a need. Because God has promised to meet all my needs. He's not promised to give me all my wants. He's promised to give me the desires of my heart, but God has also promised that he would give me a heart that desires the right things. There's a big difference between God giving me my needs and God giving me my wants. God has promised to give me all my needs. God has not promised to give me all my wants. I'll take my 10 million. Sorry, couldn't help it. Thirdly, the great rampart of God's watchful providence over his church. You know, my wife and I, I don't know, we don't really get to go a lot of places anymore because of the COVID. But, but uh, you know, uh, when we used to go out all the time, we used to have the little backpack. And uh, this backpack was in the shape of a little monkey. And uh, we would make Leah put her arms through it and it buckled in the front. And it buckled twice. And then it had a little tail that come off the back that was a leash. And so as Leah's running around, bouncing from here and there and all everywhere, hanging from the ceiling, uh, we had this little uh, backpack, and it was a little monkey, and the monkey looked like it was talking to her in her ear. So there's a little monkey, and he's got his arms wrapped around and his legs wrapped around, and this little vest, a little safety uh, you know, vest buckled, and uh, I would hold the little tail of the monkey, and the little monkeys are running around. The monkeys are Leah and the monkey. And uh, we used to get the weirdest looks from people. I mean, we'd be at the mall, you know, and we lived in Illinois and all the big city, and people would be like, what? This is uncivilized. And, uh, but, you know, why did we do that? Well, we wanted to make sure that she wasn't going to just bounce off somewhere and we was never going to see her again. We wanted to make sure, you know, that she wasn't going to go running off and somebody would swoop her up. And even as much as we tried, we could not stop her. You know, she was just a little bitty baby. And I had my seminary professors coming over for a big barbecue meal. And here's little Leah, and at that time she was just crawling, and uh, I don't know if she was one of the ones that walked at some strange, you know, like six months old or something. You know, she's walking around and bouncing around. I don't know. We had a couple of them that walked real early. But uh, she's crawling around on the floor, and, you know, we're out doing our thing and watching everything, and she puts her hand, the oven had been on. And, you know, at the bottom of the oven, there's, a, there's that little gap where you have uh, for the broiler, some ovens have the broiler that pulls out and uh, you can put food and so forth under that broiler. 
Well, that oven was heated up to about 400 degrees, and that little part, that little space in between the broiler and the oven, she put her little bitty hand right there, and it burned the daylights out of her. And as much as my wife and I watched over her to try to protect her from herself, <laughs> we couldn't because our eyes are limited. But God's not like that. We try to keep our kids from running out in the middle of the, you know, teach them to look both ways before crossing the street. Doesn't always work. And then I almost get run over running out after them, you know. And this is the way that it is. But even as much as my wife and I keep a watchful eye on our children, we're not able to do that all the time. But God is. He's not like us. God is not subject to our limitations. God's watchful eye is an omniscient eye. He knows all things. He sees all things. He is all-powerful, and God can prevent or circumvent bad things from happening to us if it's His will. We learn something of God's watchful care over His church in the words of Jesus Christ. In John 17 and verse 11, Jesus said, Holy Father, protect them by the power of Your name, the name You gave Me, so that they may be one as we are one. The fourth great rampart that we have, the great wall, is the rampart of the presence of God. The rampart of God's presence. The Jews were conscious of the presence of God, especially in Jerusalem, because of the Ark of the Covenant that I told you about. <clears throat> and that Ark represented the throne of God on earth for the Jewish people. The Ark was uh, strategically positioned in the most holy place behind the veil. And if Jewish people ever doubted the presence of God amongst them, they were reminded of the Ark of the Covenant of the mercy seat behind the veil. That's what the psalmist means. Notice verse 3. With her citadels, God made himself known as a fortress. This was a city that literally had God within it. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know of any city now on planet Earth, certainly not any of these cities that are, you know, uh, in our country right now, they're being ransacked and burnt down, it seems. But I don't know of any city on the earth that it says that God dwells in her palaces and her towers and her ramparts. But the city of Jerusalem was. And this is important. Because we have the tendency, two things. We have the tendency to devalue all of the sacrificial system of worship that the Jewish people had under the Old Covenant. They had so much that pointed them to God that they could see, feel, and touch. They had, you know, all the pieces of the tabernacle furniture. And they had all the temple and all that, that represented. We don't have that like they did. But we have something that's actually far greater than what they had. I'm going to read you this passage from John 14, 16, and 17. Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. We don't have God in our cities. We've got something much greater. If you're a Christian, you have God in you. You have the Holy Spirit. You have God himself in the form of the Holy Spirit living inside you. And if you ever doubt God's presence, 
Did you know God never leaves you nor forsake you? Why? Well, because he lives inside you. It's impossible once God takes his space inside you, his permanent abode within your heart of hearts, it's impossible for God to ever leave. He doesn't ever leave. He's always with you. And he leads and he guides you into the truth. When was the last time that you prayed to the Holy Spirit and said, Spirit of God, lead and guide me into all the truth for my life. Show me the way to go. Be unto me what you promised to be. To have the Holy Spirit within us is a great citadel, a great rampart, which protects us from the world, the flesh, and the devil. As you walk around the city, see the great wall of the Spirit of God who lives in you. And last but not least, John Owen said we have the rampart or the bulwark of God's gracious covenant. This is actually directly mentioned in the psalm. Much of the things we've already mentioned are right here in the psalm. But in verse 9, he says, We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. God's gracious covenant to us as New Testament believers, that gracious contract is written in the red ink of the blood of God's own Son. The steadfast has said love is God's relational commitment to His redeemed people. I want to quote for you Hebrews 12, 22 through 24 and 28. It said, quote, You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. End quote. He has Psalm 48 in mind, the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews does. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. We have an even greater city than what they had. And see, our city, you can't see, feel, or touch it with the physical senses. But you can take a pilgrimage there, a pilgrimage by faith. And you can, with the feet of faith, the legs of faith, take a stroll, take a walk around the outside of the great city, beholding its great citadels, beholding its great palaces and towers, its rampart, its bulwarks, and all that God has promised to do, all that God is for you. When was the last time you had your pilgrimage? When was the last time you took a trip to that great and celestial city, of Zion, where our great King God dwells upon His throne. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You as Ryan's going to come and play just one short stanza. Sing one short stanza. Thank you, musicians. Perhaps you would, right now, Go for a walk around the outside of that great city with the heart and the eyes of faith, reflecting, meditating, ruminating, seeing with the eyes of faith the great ramparts, the rampart of Christ the righteous King, the great rampart of God's innumerable promises, the great rampart of God's watchful providence over you, the great rampart of God's presence and the great rampart of God's covenant. Do you see the great walls?
Maybe you can even reach out and touch them with a hand of faith. Make them yours. In a day of uncertainty, in a day of unrest, in a day of destruction, God's celestial city is indestructible, it's invincible. Take refuge behind its great walls. And live your life underneath the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. All right. I'm looking forward to that celestial city. My friend Deb Sparks is going to be there. And more importantly than that, my Lord Jesus is going to be there sitting on his throne. I can't wait to see him. Folks, thank you so much for being with us this Lord's Day morning. God bless you. You may go in peace.